Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries, www.gospel-app.com. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount, but it's different than most studies that you've probably been involved with or heard preached. We're, we start way before the actual teaching portion of Matthew uh, in, in Matthew 5. We're going all the way back to, to Matthew 3, where we first see the adult Christ begin his ministry in the baptism. We're looking at the temptation now. We will pick up the calling of the disciples. All of those things share important aspects of Jesus' uh, character development that, that we actually need. And if we don't do that, if we haven't done our homework, we slam right into Jesus' teaching. We, have a, we risk misinterpreting, and the risk is high, misinterpreting Jesus' comments. In fact, if we don't really track and understand and, and uh, uh, in, internalize Matthew's important character development of the adult Jesus, his baptism, temptation, and calling of the disciples, we'll likely just see Jesus or tend to see Jesus as an effective teacher of good moral principles. By the way, he is, but he's so much more than that. I mean, he's greater than Buddha. He's greater than Gandhi. He's greater than Yoda. He just is so much more. So the question, what difference does the temptation actually make to me in my life? My struggles, my relationships, my religion, my Christianity, my anxieties, my, you know, let's get to the blessed bees. Isn't that where we learn what we're supposed to do and and how we're being better Christians so we feel better about ourselves and our relationship to God? that he will smile on us more so that our church would multiply and, and our spiritual life would just finally take off. I would feel less a disappointment to Jesus, right? I would just feel better about myself and my future. Exactly. But wait, whoa, hold up, Tiger. First things first. We don't want to miss the important aspects of the character development that Matthew gives us. And it's not subtle at all. So welcome to this strange scene where Satan tries to outmaneuver God. And again, there's, there isn't a more important or troubling set of verses in Matthew than the temptation narrative. And, and I think I can convince you of that. Why? Well, here we learn so much about Satan, the tester he is called here. But we also learn something fascinating about Jesus and the nature of the kingdom of God that shines a huge spotlight on how we're supposed to understand the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, like I said, if we skim past the temptation narrative or just check the box, we're likely also going to skim past the Sermon on the Mount. It happens so often. It's a very strong statement, but I think I can convince you. All right, let's get into it. Let's look at the devil for a moment. Satan takes, or let me say even more provocatively, he's given three shots to embarrass God, Jesus, undermine the kingdom's inevitable plan. Look, he's prepared for this for millennia. He's fine-honed his con, his scam to razor-sharp edge. He's ready. So logically then, we're witnessing the three most dangerous temptations of Satan. These are the big dogs. Let me change metaphors. This is the 1971 heavyweight title bout between Ali and Fraser or uh, the 1985 slugfest between Hitman Hearns and Motor City Cobra Marvin Hagler. And at least on the playbill for this wild one in the wilderness, uh, it seemed like a big deal, but it turned out to be a non-starter. A pretty overwhelming victory for Jesus. When it was over, Jesus is untouched. And look, that carries the unanimous decision of all the judges. Satan doesn't land a glove. 
So let's face it. When we sit back and think about it with clear heads, I'm going to say the result couldn't have been in question from the get-go. Satan had already lost the war long before this. Prophecy means something. Does, does anyone really think that the throne of heavens could actually have been toppled? Look, Satan's powerful, but he's nowhere near that powerful or clever. He's created. So it's a lopsided fight. I, so I don't believe that even he thought he had a chance here. He's just doing what uh, you know, corrupt, destructive beings do when they think they can, whether they can win or not, they're going to go down fighting and do as much damage on the way. And it turns out he did very little damage. And by the way, I am going to say that the implication is that God just used him to help introduce an aspect of the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's introduction. He's, he's uh, in, in, in the intro. <laughs> so look, you may not agree with that. That's fine. It's a gospel rant. You can disagree. Uh, by the way, give me comments, bill at gospel-app.com. But I think we would all agree that Satan would never hold back anything. Not here. This was the chance. This was the big time. And this is the import of that. Do you want to ever see and understand Satan's best moves? Well, here they are. Here's number one through three. The biggest temptations are not what we might expect. It's not pornography. It's not drugs. It's not sex. It's not greed, hypocrisy, lying, violence, racism. All of those things are horrific. And he's a fan, but chump change in contrast to Satan's really, really big moves. All right. All of those are level two bad things. And I'm not undercutting them. They're horrific. All right. But the top three are on another tier uh, and you never want to see them. And by the way, I think we see them all the time. That's that's the interesting part. In military terms, Satan doesn't do a frontal attack, a headlong charge into the strength of God's well-armed front line. I mean, Jesus, that would be a dismal and way too obvious suicide attack. He's too smart for that. So what he does is an insidious, brilliant flanking attack, uh, thinking perhaps that perhaps that he had seen, he's discovered a weakness in humanity. And by the way, I think he's right. Uh, and after all, it just seems to work all the time. Eve included. I'll, you'll see what I mean. Me every day. And so look, I get the logic. Maybe it'll work for the incarnated Jesus. Maybe all humanity is flawed, including Jesus's, right? Maybe. So here we go. Drum roll. Satan doesn't tempt Jesus to do something bad at all, but to do something good. Boom. I said it. And we can learn so much about how Satan thinks here. So just listen, Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, and really it's since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So Satan is not asking Jesus to prove that he's the Son of God. Really, in the Greek, it's since you are the Son of God. That is so as clear and helpful and good Greek. So the way our brains are wired, we miss this. Satan's bad, so everything that he must say and tempt must be bad, because he is a proponent of division, injustice, racism, despising, violence, selfishness, and uh, indifference, dehumanizations of all kind, right? He's a big fan. But his first suggestion to Jesus was none of those. It was a good thing. It wasn't an evil idea at all. And that's what makes it so dangerous. We need to wake up and see this is his number one strategy. Jesus was hungry, right? 
He was really hungry. I would be 40 days without food. And it was well within his legit powers. We see it later. His legit authority to change stones into McRibs or whatever else he wanted. He's God. And to do so was not intrinsically evil because he did it later, right? He, he multiplied bread. He created bread, right? So it's not intrinsically evil. It's a good thing. And in fact, if anyone else had made the suggestion to him other than Satan, it would sound reasonable. So look, Jesus, I don't know what's happening, but your father certainly doesn't want you to starve, right? He, he can't be happy with this. He loves you. He said so, right? In the baptism. And you've earned all of the love and favor in the universe. He said so in the baptism. And look, this is something that is within your power and authority. You don't have to keep running to ask God, right? I mean, or wait for the Spirit to give you the go-ahead, the green light. There's no point in being a martyr. I mean, that'll come, but this, nah. Of course he wants you satisfied and not hungry and strong. He's chill. And Jesus, look, there's nothing in the Torah that says, thou shalt not turneth stone into bread. God has not said the, the day you make stones bread, you will die, right? <laughs> All right, look, what, what's wrong with Satan's suggestion, right? Because it's sketchy. Something's off. What makes it powerful and dangerous then and in our lives today? Well, simply put, it's reasonable. It makes sense. It's normally a good thing to do. It accomplishes something good. It honors Jesus. It seems to honor God's name. It sounds like something God would say, but yeah, something stinks. And conversely, Jesus' defense, at least on the surface, isn't reasonable. Not humanly speaking, Jesus' defense is faith. OMG, I know that when I use that word, over half of your Christian eyes gloss over. Sounds like another snoozer talk on faith. We've been there, done that, tried that before. I got nothing. <laughs> uh-uh. Now, this time, we're going to jazz you. We're going to scare the socks off you. Uh, this is big. And this is a critical concept to cover if you really want to understand the Sermon on the Mount. Or, let me put it differently, if we don't want to, if we don't get this concept of spirit faith right, we will misunderstand. We will misapply the teachings uh, in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, I guarantee it. The entire Sermon on the Mount could rightly be titled, Why I Desperately Need Spirit Faith Now. Why I Need Desperately, Why I Desperately Need Spirit Faith Now. So, this section is not so much that Jesus defeats Satan. I mean, it's true, but that's burying the headline. You know, woo, that was close. God's still on the throne. Could have gone the other way. Look, I, I don't think that's it, right? Um, subtitle, best. It is that. But it's a Ginsu knife commercial more, you know, but wait. And more importantly, we're being told something about Satan, about our desperate need for something, and about the very core nature of the kingdom of God. And I think God is using Satan to help us see it. Uh, that's what God does. Uh, so it is a balanced, clear view of Satan uh, maybe the, the most balanced and clear view of Satan in the Bible, at least top three or top four. Uh, let me imagine Satan's strategy for football fans. A team's first-string quarterback goes out, COVID protocol maybe, whatever. Second-string quarterback who hasn't taken a snap in years, he's, he's in the game, shocks people how well he does. I mean, we've seen this a couple of times this year in the, in the pros. He looks like he should be the first-string 
But in the next game, they start him again, and he crashes and burns. Seems like he can't do anything right. Why? Well, typically now, the defenses have some tape on the guy. They've looked at it. They know certain subtle weaknesses. They know which way he runs. They know his strengths. And they strategize and develop a defense to exploit it. They have a book on him. That's the phrase. That's the terminology. Well, in Matthew 4, we get the book on Satan. We see his best stuff defeated. But beware, and, and, and it's still good stuff, and, and he, it works on me daily, but Satan has a glass jaw in, in a, at least one area, and I'm not suggesting he's weak or should be taken lightly, not at all, uh, uh, even though Jonathan Edwards calls him the, the greatest blockhead ever. Look, he is brilliant uh, far more than any of us, and he's been doing this for so long. So what I'm saying is, Christian, just become more aware of his modus operandi, his MO. Don't just suspect he's going to tempt you to do bad stuff. I think we lean that direction. See, more than likely, he's going to tempt you to do good stuff and miss the great kingdom rescue stuff. Just totally miss it, all the while thinking you're doing good stuff. And that totally catches us off guard. I don't think we have defenses really prepared for that. Uh, Let me give you an example. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from churches as I work with them to revitalize, quote, but we are a friendly church, close quote. Now, some churches, by the way, have that on, the, on their website and mission statement. Why would you come to our church? Because look at us. Look at all the pictures. We're friendly church. Now, what's wrong with being a friendly church? Nothing. That's my point. It is a good thing. Certainly, you don't want to be an unfriendly church, right? That's a bad strategy. But let me ask the question, where in the Bible are we commanded to be a friendly church? Can you find that? Torah? Jesus? I can't find a verse, Old or New Testament. Now, I can show you verses where we're told we're supposed to love all of our neighbors and even love our enemies. Now, that's, that's, a, bar to, to, I mean, that's a high bar. That's a mission statement, right? Quote, we are regularly praying that Jesus would give us power to love people who throw rocks at us, to honor them with God's motivating power. Close quote. Now, you know, we can wordsmith that, but that's something interesting. So check it out. If Satan can convince a church, believe that being friendly is the goal, which they can likely do more or less on their own with effort, they're going to miss the really good stuff. Right? They'll become self-confident and be taken out of the game for the most part. Right? Because to love their neighbors, they're going to need God. To be friendly, yeah, we can kind of pull that off. And Satan's laughing all of the way to coffee time. So Satan is tempting Jesus with good. And not to worry, it's not going to work. And God is ultimately going to use this battle for our benefit so that we can see something fresh. And remember, Jesus could have just cast Satan off the planet. It's a parlor trick. He's God. So again, I believe that Jesus is putting this narrative here in front of the Sermon on the Mount because there is something important for us to see and unpack, something we need to learn about ourselves, our need, or the nature of the kingdom of God as we listen to the Sermon on the Mount. All right, back to four one. Then Satan <clears throat> was led by the Spirit into the, into the desert to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. So, let me just sort of rant. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus's first act as the ordained king, right? Baptism, ordination. He's now declared the faithful son of God, Psalm 2. 
And his first act wasn't to take control, to sling out new edicts, to set people free, to crush injustice and oppression. Uh, he is going to do all those things, right? But he doesn't, that's not his first act or second or third. He doesn't put Satan behind bars. He could have. Uh, he could have forced people to read Torah in the classroom or start handing out new hearts so that they would finally follow him, uh, that have suggestions on improving worship music. <laughs> or to be a friendly Messiah. All of those things would have been good, and I might have done them. I probably would have. Some of those sound reasonable. No, his first act was to only do and only want to do what the Spirit tells him to do. It was to follow the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. Man, do you hear it? Did you cringe a little? I mean, it's an ugly strategy for most Americans. It's, I, you know, un-American? Is that too harsh? I mean, for me, I can see why we don't want to talk about this part of that verse. And we don't want to highlight it in this or other passages. Certainly, we don't want this to influence how we read the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is about all those things I choose to do, right? So, I mean, it should influence it. Who wants to give up any of our rights, and particularly choice, particularly control? I don't. Come on, honestly, I, I cringe at this. Jesus, really? Now, I, I don't imagine this is so much a, a choice, you know, a, a PowerPoint step number one, as a character trait of Jesus. He didn't ever need to sing or want to sing, I did it my way. That's just not attractive to him. It's not attractive to the rest of the Trinity. He's comfortable with submission. And I'm speaking humanly, he's comfortable with being led. Now, I know I could hear it over the, the microphone that some of your heads just exploded when I said that God was comfortable submitting. God's sovereign. God is in authority. I don't see a name of God that says God submits. But yeah, but in his sovereignty, many times he willingly chooses to be a follower. My proof? Here it is. Jesus, right? he's God. He submits to the will of the Spirit. He follows. Jesus is made of the same DNA as the Father and the Spirit. By the way, in Psalm 113, uh, verses 5 to 8, this is one of my go-to preaching passages. If you want me to come to your church and preach it, I will. God is imagined as willingly humiliating himself to work with us at all. Think about it. He's, he is that high and that sovereign and that glorious. And he does. He, we're told in, in the psalm that God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. But to get there to get his hands on the, the needy and the poor, to get his hands dirty, so to speak, he has to humiliate himself. He steps down from his throne and gets in the dirt. That's the, that's the picture. And that makes him the highest and most glorious and worshipful uh, deity ever, right? Name me another supposed deity and any other religion that is willing to do that, right? Or willing to admit it. America, Jesus is comfortable being and even willingly being a follower. Leaders, take note. Or conversely, leading. He is what whole humanity and good leadership looks like, and good uh, rescuer looks like, a good savior looks like. He's capable and comfortable with either leading or following, depending upon the goal. And remember, Jesus's goal, uh, the the unified goal is to rescue unlovable, stiff-necked, needy, hurting, paranoid people who naturally won't follow. That's, that's what he does. That's the kingdom. And in this temptation narrative, Jesus bowed his holy, holy head and followed the Spirit's command. 
If the spirit had led him to Jericho, he would go to the pinnacle of the temple. And by the way, we'll see that bastardized by Satan in a moment. But if the spirit had, Jesus would be there. If the spirit led him to a high mountain, same. Uh, Whether the end point made sense to him or not, because it's not clear where his omniscience, Jesus I'm speaking about, where it ends or begins, that's way over my pay grade. We could talk about it at a different time. I have opinions. Uh, And to follow the Spirit's lead, whether it caused pain or discomfort or hunger, right, or death, Jesus' core plan to crush Satan again and to rescue lost people began with step one, step two, step three, step four, was to stay in sync with the Trinity's plan and strategy and the Trinity's active, intimate leading. Jesus He's it. He's the only one who's been that highly motivated to do it. That is his job, number one. I wish it were mine, uh, but it falls. It just, I struggle with it, honestly. But Jesus is modeling the importance of the walk of spirit faith, spirit faith. I'm going to try to say that in distinction from a faith that comes natural to humanity. Okay. And this is not a bumper sticker. This is critical. And the conclusion that this is important to Jesus, is followed and supported by looking at the three accounts of the temptation as a whole. All three Gospels tell us that Jesus is led into the wilderness. Led, right? Matthew uses the aorist passive verb anago, and the emphasis is on Jesus and the one-time act. The Spirit led Jesus. Jesus was led by the Spirit from the Jordan to the wilderness, uh, in toto. Mark arguably taken from a different source, focuses on the action from the Spirit's point of view, the Spirit ekbaleo, Jesus. A strong word, the Spirit forces Jesus, drives Jesus out of the valley, up into the mountain, clearly taking a position of authority and control. Luke adds a continuity aspect of it. Jesus was being led implying the whole journey, step by step, implying. That's the implication. If you put the three together, we get a great full-orb picture of the spirit faith that we're trying to imagine. There is an initial and ongoing dependence upon the spirit's leadership in Jesus's faith walk. It's an active passiveness, a dependence, right? Looking back, we would say the Holy Spirit ran the show. He made Jesus move and then continued to lead him along the prescribed rescue path. Jesus did what he was told to the letter. And this willingness to trust and want to follow God's lead is the clearest fingerprint of Jesus's kingship, the core of the kingdom of God. This is what a good king looks like in the family of God. And it's one of those things that most clearly differentiates Jesus from Satan. A lot of things do, but this one's clear. And it differentiates uh, Jesus from his disciples and me. Because we, humanly speaking, really dislike that kind of following. We use derogatory phrases like blind faith. We don't mean that's a good thing. Or being a puppet. Or losing my free will. And none of those things are attractive to us. In fact, we're afraid of them. We despise them. We resent them. I get it. Me too, by the way. We have all been hurt by doing that. At one point or or another in our life, we've been taken advantage of. We've got the scars to show it. Our brain's amygdala will trigger into a fear cycle if someone, or even God, comes to us and says, shut up and go. Go right now to, you know, fill in the blank. 
right? So my brain says, sure, God, but, but why? I mean, what's the reason? It's only fair you tell me. What, what's the plan? What should I expect? Will it hurt a little, a lot? What will it cost me? What's the long-term ramifications? I should know all this before I agree, before I buy into your command and do it. I mean, the last time, remember, I listened to you was a disaster and pretty painful, and I didn't see any good out of it. So I have a right to know God. <laughs> and this is what our so-called free will demands. By the way, that belies the fact that it's not so free, right? I mean, come on, can we be honest? My free will is so scarred, so paranoid and cynical and skeptical and careful. We moderns will go so far out of our way to defend our so-called right to choose. But come on, don't, don't we see that it's fear and anxiety talking for the most part, right? Remember the abysmal failure of the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? Isn't that a definition of choice, of free will, supposedly, quote unquote? Look, I don't want to admit it, but my will is not as free as I want to believe. It's subconsciously largely controlled by my broken human nature. I'm a big fan of the attachment theory. If you've been to our website, gospel-app.com, listen to any of my talks, including early gospel rants, you'll hear me talk about attachment theory. I have a, a Zoom meeting that I'm doing on attachment theory for, for dummies. If you're interested, contact me, bill at gospel-app.com. It says that our brain is largely ruled subconsciously, right? So by subconscious inner working models that were shaped, uh, hardwired into our brain when we were infants, based upon how we subjectively experienced our caregivers care for us when we stressed, when we dysregulated, or lack of care, and perceived, right? So today, subconsciously, those inner working, hardwired models in my brain are actively trying to protect me from being hurt or stressed or dysregulated, exposed, abandoned, feel unloved. In attachment terms, I struggle with anxiety and, and avoidance. So my will isn't free in that sense. It's heavily influenced over and over. And we need, so we need to be rescued actually from our so-called free will. Just ask Adam and Eve and, and David and Paul and, and Peter and all the rest. Jesus didn't suffer, I'm going to suggest, from those subconscious inner working models because he had a perfect caregiver, ultimately God the Father. So, and there have only been three humans who have experienced a purely free will. Again, this is theoretical, but Adam and Eve pre-fall, but not theoretically Jesus, and not you, not me. We are responsible. I'm not saying we're not responsible and accountable for our actions and decisions, but all I'm saying is that Many of the decisions that you make each day are reactionary and subconscious and are not all your fault, particularly in the stress of in the presence of stress and conflict or imagined conflict or a triggering of a past conflict or stress, which happens all day. And our subconscious leaps in with very powerful brain chem chemicals and we fight or flight or freeze. It's not all your fault. Jesus has something <clears throat> even more above those day-to-day -day, uh, inner working models and experience, right? He has something on the positive side too. He has a celestial, unshakable love and trust and respect for the Trinity and a pure desire to want to do what they tell him to do because he trusts them perfectly. And not 
trusted them to keep him from getting hungry or from getting hurt or from difficult, dangerous situations or even getting tortured and killed. I think he expected all of those things to accomplish the bigger plan, but he was willing to do them because he trusted the Trinity and had a high sense that whatever path they led him, it was the right path of greatest glory and rescue for others. We could say rightly that whatever he did, he did for others. So Jesus is modeling what that walking by the Spirit's faith looks like. Jesus did that without any observable hesitancy, not reported, no reported debate, no reported uh, request for clarification. He would have had to walk past luxurious, comfortable Jericho, you know, think Bunyan's vanity fair distraction, up a difficult thousand foot rise to the harsh, dry limestone desert wilderness plateau between Jericho and Jerusalem. And it was the plan that Jesus was just totally convinced would lead to greatest kingdom glory. That's why he came and the greatest rescue for others. He is the Messiah King. So take a moment and just let the awkwardness of this wash over us. I mean, can can we agree that you and I just don't want to be so accommodating to God or anyone else for that matter? That's the understatement of the decade, right? Uh, A little bit of diversion. There's been so much historical debate about what is God's will for my life. And I get the question, reasonable question, But what if the answer is measured by what is that next step, God? And then, God, what is my next step? And then, God, what is my next one? What if God's will for my life is less about a one-time career and calling decision, something I can put on a business card, though it could include that, and more like a GPS, right? Alexa, what's my life calling? Okay, Bill, turn left at the light and go until I tell you to do the next turn couple minutes later. Okay, Bill, well done, good and faithful servant. Now turn left at the light. I'll get back to you. And so on. I mean, yeah, that's not what I was asking about. Certainly, Alexa, you can tell me where I'm headed or how long it's going to take or how much gas I'm going to need. Seems important. Or is it going to hurt when I get there? I should know those things. I had an Old Testament prof, really good one, who argued that this was the essence of biblical wisdom. Imagine a lamp that has juice enough to show you uh, the trail just a few feet in front of you. A very dark night, no no street lights in Old Testament Israel. And wisdom is like that lamp. You only see a few feet in front of you, right? Give me wisdom is equivalent then to give me enough light to see right in front of me uh, any pothole that might be right there so I can walk around it. Give me that kind of light. Well, truth time, is that the question we're asking? Often, right? what is my next step, God? That's all I need. All I need is daily bread. We'll get to that when we get to the Lord's Prayer. Not, you know, maybe, likely not. Would, the, would that answer to your question about God's will for your life uh, be satisfying if he says, well, I'll just give you the, the next path, the next step? And wh- what if his answer was, you just need to trust me uh, every, every step. Trust him now and, and now. Oh, and now? Uh, that that is you with spirit birth faith and and spirit birth faith motivates us empowers us to to want to lead uh, want his lead day by day moment by moment step by step so he wants and has saved and given new hearts so that we would be crazy uh, and humanly troubling dependent even when there is absolutely no reason given 
even when that step looks and feels like it's putting you in a dangerous path and your inner working models and amygdala trigger, right? Or maybe that's just me. So uh, we've got to wrap this up. I'm not going to tell you to just ask a different question. Um, we are shame-free here at Gospel App. I'm going to say that there is a reason that you and I don't ask God, what is my next step? Because we don't want to. I want the big picture. It's not a matter of education. You know, now that you know, you should ask better questions. No, your situation, my situation is so much worse. We don't ask because we really don't want to live our life that way. Jesus did. I don't. But the good news is that that spirit is in you, in your inner being, Ephesians 3. And, you know, the one that led Jesus into the wilderness with zero recorded explanation of Jesus, he's in you. So ask him in you to make you want to ask the step-by-step question. Keep asking until you begin to feel a little like you want to more. Then keep on asking and doing and asking and doing and become, uh, make that habitual. That is the spirit faith walk that Jesus is naturally doing and we're seeing uh, in, in this temptation scene. I struggle with it every day. Uh, back to my introduction. Can we now see a little why this would change our posture as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount? After everything that Jesus says that we should do in the Sermon on the Mount, like, for instance, take the log out of your own eyes, or don't lust, or don't be angry, we should hear that little voice inside of us say, I should. I get that, but, but now I see that I can't do it. Uh, and why? Because I don't want to. I don't need more instruction. I need a rescue. I need an external power from God, or, or I will do what is right in my own eyes. And even at my best, right? And, and keep asking to give me the God to give me the overarching call in my life, because that's what I really want. And that's a good thing, but overlooking the great thing. God, make me want to trust you. God, give me spirit faith and make me want to follow you step by step. Whew. Jesus is setting up a case for his response. I, I know you won't do these things. You definitely need a rescue, and I am that rescuer. That is why I came. There we go. I just summarized the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, real quickly, did you pick up the ironical contrast in the text, Matthew 4.1? Jesus was led by the Spirit. So Jesus is saying to the Spirit, Jesus, you choose. I'm giving up my right to choose, and I'm good with that. But the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Satan is telling Jesus, you shouldn't be good with the spirit choosing. Jesus, you should choose. So we'll pick it up here on the next podcast. Doesn't this change how we hear the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> right? It's so much better than we thought. Jesus, who's going to stand and preach to those troubled masses, is not just a qualified teacher, so much more. Seven things now. He's hypernomian. No one ever has ever had a higher view of the law. Two, he's come to rescue failures. Three, he is a teacher of life principles, the greatest ever. Four, when he speaks, power goes forth and actually changes people's lives and identities and motivations. Five, he regularly humiliates himself to do his thing. Six, he is the only approved of son of God. Seven, and he is modeling to us the walk of spirit faith. The kingdom is less about principles that you're required to do. It is that, but come on, how's that going? The kingdom is of God is spirit, faith-centric. We have the spirit in our inner being, but we need power from God in order to be willing to hear and be motivated to follow. It's not natural, but it is to God. He knows that you and I will not do these things on our own steam. 
We're not just lacking info. What would Jesus do, right? WWJD is not enough. Truth told, I don't want to DWJD. Or I would have. Right, fun, right? Maybe troubling, provocative, interesting, life-changing. But it does make sense, right? Look, help me get the word out to others to come and check out this podcast. We're we're out some really we're about some really big things. Uh, we've been trying to tell well-meaning, struggling Christians that the Sermon on the Mount is another or clearer list of what we should do in order to please God, meaning to rescue ourselves. Well, how's that gone for us? Look, look at the state of Christianity in the United States and the world. There's so many shamed Christians who, are, who know they've fallen short of that and are tired of trying. So pass this on to those Christians who've exited churches because they feel like failures. They feel like they've fallen short of God's uh, expectations. And to those who really, really want to experience the love and favor of Jesus, you know them, right? Just, just show some courage and pass this on to them, right? And they don't have to buy it. It's, it's a rant. Until next time, take heart, child of God. Dedicating time each day to spend feeding our minds and our hearts the truth of God's Word is immensely helpful in our growth as followers of Christ. I'm John Stonge, and each day I host a show called Daily Devotions with Pastor John. On the show, I spend just a few minutes taking an applicational look at one or two verses of Scripture before coming to the Lord in prayer. If you'd like to make a habit of spending more time meditating on the truth of God's Word, You can listen to Daily Devotions with Pastor John at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.